The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And so in some ways, I wish there was more centralization because where I get really concerned is when a message goes out that we're concerned, we, the U.S. government, about threats from China, but now we're saying this to a bunch of field agents who might not necessarily have the training both in how federal grants work, but also in what kinds of connections to different entities in China might really be of concern. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, January 11th, 2022. On December 21st, Harvard University chemist Dr. Charles Lieber was convicted of making false statements and other tax offenses in connection with his participation in the Chinese Thousand Talents program. Lieber's case got a lot of attention, both because of his profile as a well-known researcher at Harvard University and because of the case's connection with the U.S. government's occasionally controversial three-year-old program called the China Initiative. The program was unveiled in 2018 by then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions and has been used by the Justice Department to investigate and charge a variety of wrongdoing connected with the Chinese government, economic espionage, research security, and lots of other issues. To talk through the Lieber case and the China Initiative as a whole, I sat down with Emily Weinstein, a research analyst at Georgetown's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, and Margaret Lewis, a professor at Seton Hall Law School. Both have written extensively about the China Initiative and provide thoughts on the Lieber case and what to make of the initiative as a whole. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 11th, Dr. Charles Lieber and the China Initiative. All right. So Emily, I think the best place to start here is with the news hook. So Dr. Charles Lieber, give me a sense of who he was, why we're talking about him and what he's alleged to have done. Of course. So Charles Lieber, Dr. Charles Lieber was the former chair of Harvard University's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology and was a very well-regarded scientist in the field of nanoscience. Um, And he recently was charged Uh, with making false statements to the U.S. federal authorities regarding his connections to China, specifically connections to the Wuhan University of Technology and the Thousand Talents Plan. And so his trial took place, or sort of wrapped up at the end of December, is that right? Correct. And just give folks a sense of what was the end result there. Yeah, so uh, in December 2021, uh, right at the end of the year, the Justice Department announced that he was officially convicted of lying to federal authorities about his affiliations with 
Thousand Talents, as well as failing to report the income he received from Thousand Talents and his connections back to Wuhan University of Technology. All right. So Maggie, this will become more relevant in a bit, but could you walk through the the things that Lieber was charged with, the actual criminal charges? So I think for some people who listen to a lot of different episodes of Lawfare Podcast, the false statements type of charge sounds pretty familiar. But if, if you could sort of walk through what they are, what the you know various elements of them are, and, and where we might see them in other contexts. Right. So there are six counts, uh, two, two, and two. So two counts of false statements to federal authorities. And this is a, you know, a well-used criminal charge that can span all sorts of time that people are lying to the federal government. Uh, the second two counts were false income tax returns, that he uh, knew that he was submitting false income tax returns. And of course, uh, these have storied histories, and you hear the Al Capone sort of references come out once in a while. And then the last two counts is ones that you don't hear about quite as much, but the failing to file reports of foreign bank and financial accounts, or FBAR, uh, with the IRS. And this is if you have foreign bank accounts over a certain amount, it's 10000 still, that you need to, in addition to your sort of normal income tax return, also declare those accounts. So that was the only of the three charges that had something specifically foreign about it. But you know, all, all of these charges have to do with essentially lying. Right. So maybe the, the best way to bridge toward talking about the China initiative, which which this case falls under the umbrella of, would be to talk a bit about the Thousand Talents program. So Emily, you mentioned that that was sort of the the central locus of concern with Lieber. Talk to me a bit about what that is and why it's important that Lieber is alleged to have been involved with them. Right. So the Thousand Talents plan or ta- Thousand Talents program was or is kind of viewed as like the flagship Chinese government talent program. Although I will say it is it is only one of about 250 or more various talent programs that actually exist. But Thousand Talents came about around 2008. And it's a program, obviously, like a lot of Chinese talent programs that aims to mitigate the effects of brain drain. So China opened its doors in the late 70s. Uh, a lot of Chinese folks went out to get degrees abroad. And the Chinese government realized that people weren't coming back. In addition to getting folks to come back, there was a a focus on foreigners and trying to get foreign experts um, in various high tech fields or various strategic fields to come to China as well. This this kind of had a twofold effect in that one, it would help to bolster China's own university. It would help to make their universities more world-renowned, which is something that the Chinese government has been working on since the 90s. But it also would hopefully encourage uh, Chinese citizens to want to stay and not go abroad for degrees. Um, so they, they hope that, you know, a young Chinese university student or someone who was, you know, applying to PhD programs would look and say, oh, we get, you know, this foreign expert who is from the United States or from Germany or from India or any other country, uh, I don't actually have to go abroad. They actually teach at X university in China, so I can just get my degree here. So that is that, that latter category is where we see Charles Lieber fitting in. And so Maggie, just to make sure we're we're all on the same page here, is it itself a crime to participate in the Thousand Talents program, right? So Lieber, it's not his his participation in that per se that got him in trouble, but it's it's what he did about participating in it. Right. So it's not a crime under U.S. federal law 
to participate in a foreign talents plan with China or any other country. I mean, Congress could try to make it a law that it is a crime. And there's been all sorts of proposals as far as how to increase the ability to uh, criminalize some of this behavior. But at this point, the focus is on the lack of transparency and in particular, the false kind of statements. And and wire fraud is the other charge you're seeing a lot. And by wire fraud, meaning that a person is using electric, you know, electronic communications to make false statements, usually email, to get something from another person, usually money. So it's the trying to increase transparency through the use of criminal law first saying that what this individual did was criminal and that person deserves punishment, but then more generally sending a ripple effect out, the general deterrence to show other people who are working in the science and technology fields uh, that they too need to be very aware of these rules. Um, At least no one has tried to steal my knowledge of human rights and criminal justice in China. I wish they would. Not yet, at least. So Emily, this is a good jumping off point. Let's talk about the the China Initiative. So when did the China Initiative begin and what is it? So the China Initiative began with former Attorney General Jeff Sessions during the Trump administration in 2018. It was an effort really to try and target what was viewed as a large-scale issue related to China. And I, I say that kind of to frame some of the discussion that's going to come later. But the big piece was to try and develop an enforcement strategy concerning non-traditional collectors as it relates to China. So this is looking at researchers and labs, universities, the defense industrial base. So covering everything from private sector, academia, all of that, that are being co-opted into transferring technology contrary to U.S. interests. So this is kind of the the broad framing behind it. But I, I will say there is at least from the public messaging, we're seeing a lot of focus on economic espionage or industrial espionage as kind of the rationale for going after these various, quote unquote, non-traditional collectors. And just give us, to, to concretize this a bit, give us a couple examples of what you, what you mean by economic espionage. When you, when you say that, what do, what do you mean and what would the Justice Department mean? So I will say, so my definition of economic espionage is the transfer of technology or knowledge or software to benefit someone in an economic competitiveness realm. So I'm talking about um, instances where, so one that just came up in the news recently was run related to uh, the transfer of technology or transfer of know-how from Monsanto, the big genetically modified uh, food corporation here in the United States. That to me is a very like quintessential example of what I view as economic espionage. The Department of Justice, and, and Maggie may be a better person to answer this than I am, but The Department of Justice, at least in the context of the China Initiative, I think has left the definition of economic espionage fairly broad and ambiguous. And I think there are reasons to do that. But I think it has caused a bit of confusion and has kind of led to some of the rising concerns about the China Initiative and about the kind of concerns around what is the mission? What is the definition? Well, with the, the narrow definition, to put on my, my criminal law professor hat, of economic espionage, when you look at the U.S. codes, the federal criminal law, there is a specific provision dealing with 
trade secret theft, so a certain kind of intellectual property, these trade secrets and information that's valuable that companies keep out of the public domain because that's what keeps it valuable, the Coca-Cola formula, for example. And, and there, that if you steal that and give it to anyone or try to give it to anyone, you've got trade secret theft. But in particular, there's a provision in the U.S. Code that has to deal with when the intended beneficiary of that theft is either a foreign government or an entity that has a, a connection, a nexus with the foreign government such that it's kind of seen within the, the orbit or you know, sufficiently connected that you're essentially giving it to the foreign government. And, and when Sessions, which feels so long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, stood up at the mic in November 2018, you know, that was really, I say, the marquee crime, the, the crime that was put front and center. But the China initiative, as initially laid out, and there's still the bullet points up on the Department of Justice's website, was broader than that and included this idea of more generally of research integrity, research security, also working with the Department of Treasury, and a lot of other of these bigger ideas about how to protect the U.S. from what was seen as this concern about China stealing the U.S.'s intellectual property. And so, Emily, just give us a bit of a vague sense of, of the numbers here. So how many active FBI investigations are there that would fall under the umbrella of the China Initiative Program? And, and very roughly, do you have a sense of what the number of charges that have come out of investigations associated with the program? So I will say, as someone who is not privy to um, what is happening behind the scenes in the classified space, the most recent announcement about kind of you know, looking at the China Initiative writ large, said that there were about 77 known China Initiative cases. There are statements from former FBI Director for Ray that say it's a lot more. But the, so the current, the one that I am looking at, the, the kind of data set that I'm looking at includes about 77 cases. And they really range in the uh, charges that are being brought. I mean, as Maggie mentioned, we see things like wire fraud, we see grant fraud, but we also see things, I mean, you know, theft of trade secrets comes up, but there are others that are different. Um, for example, within the within the kind of crux of the China Initiative, there was a case involving a former NYPD police officer who was surveilling the Tibetan American community in Queens, which obviously, if you compare that to like research security, it's, it's a bit of a kind of a different conversation. The only connecting point there is that obviously these are both China-related cases. And again, I am only working with the publicly available information. I know the cases that are ongoing and there are cases that exist in the classified space that might kind of change the overall picture. But again, what we're seeing in, in the public eye uh, is kind of a skewed collection of cases that all tie back to China in, in some capacity. And I'd add that when you think about what what are the cases, you know, there's the, the cases that are being investigated. And, you know, their director, Ray, has said, you know, China connected case is being opened every 12 hours. I've heard every 10 hours. And that's, you know, is almost completely opaque. And, and to a certain extent, for good reason. If we asked law enforcement to show the cards publicly, it would compromise a lot of investigations. At, at the same time, I think it's totally fair to try to push to ask, well, what are the parameters of those investigations? What, what, what strategies are being used to investigate? But then when you move up to the cases that are actually indicted, actually charged um, under federal 
law for felonies, um, then you get a much smaller number. And and to be clear, there's not like a, a definitive list of, of China initiative cases. The Department of Justice maintains a website that has a description of the China initiative. It also has example cases. And that list has been in flux in part because, of course, new cases are added, but also cases have been taken away. When cases have been dropped, um, they will be taken down. Um, and there's also been some adjustments. For example, the, the outlier case that I point to was for a long time, a case was up that had to deal with turtle smuggling. And it was that they were um, some uh, protected species of turtle that were being sent to, uh, I think, Singapore, but connected to China somehow in the path. Um, nothing to do with intellectual property or research security. Um, that was taken down. So there's uh, a certain amount of ambiguity about what is a China initiative case and, and how that determination even to have it selected as an example on the website is made. So you preempted my next question there a bit. So there is no, there's no real way of knowing, right, whether an individual case is, is part of the China initiative. It's not the case that if you, you know, pulled up the indictment for, for one of these cases, you would just see, you know, in paragraph seven, someone saying that this is, you know, this is a part of the China initiative. It's really either up to anyone's imagination or, or to whatever the Justice Department wants to publicly say. Exactly. So what makes a federal criminal case a China initiative case is a known unknown, right? So there's certain characteristics which are more likely to land a case on that list. Um, but some cases that you think would be on the list, like the Professor Gang Chen's case of MIT, I think it's now on the list. But for a long time after he was indicted, it was not actually listed on the website. Uh, and so there is um, some questions about, you know, this construct and what exactly should be included within it. And then, of course, my bigger question, what is the value um, of that construct and, and what are the drawbacks of, of putting out this idea of an initiative under the title, the China Initiative? Yeah. And I, I want to dive into all that in a second. But one last question in the way of background that may get us there anyways, is I want to bring it back to Lieber. So, is Lieber a, a white academic at a you know major research institution? Is he a representative defendant for a China Initiative case? Is it is it the case that he's a real aberration? Is he you know vaguely what you would expect? Give us a a general sense of the demographics of the defendants here. Yeah, I can just say too that that Charles Lieber, at least from my research looking into you know who Chinese talent programs are targeting, he he completely fits the bill. I, I you know. There's a different word in Chinese for overseas versus foreign. So it, for those who speak Chinese, overseas is um, Hai Wai. And for those who, you know, and foreign is uh, Wai Guo. And Chinese talent programs actually will differentiate between the two. And they will say this is targeting, you know, people overseas, as in like the Chinese diaspora or people that the Chinese Communist Party views as the diaspora versus foreigners. Um, and there are programs specifically designed to target foreigners, to target the Charles Liebers of the world um, who have no previous connections to China in terms of ethnicity or heritage, but are operating in a field that is of strategic interest to the Chinese government. And, you know, what, Char what Charles Lieber was working on is, is key, you know, foundational, you know, emerging technology space that, you know, is obviously of interest to the Chinese government for a host of reasons, both economic and national security related. So Charles Lieber, to me, and, and the fact that also I would add that he was at Harvard University, he was at a very prestigious university in the United States, 
I think because of that, he, he fits the bill. You know, there's a lot of talk recently in the China Initiative about only targeting Asian Americans. And I think that is a huge part of the China Initiative, but I, I would not discount the piece about targeting foreigners because there is a distinct part of the Chinese government strategy that aims to do that. You know, overwhelmingly, when we look at the defendants, they tend to be ethnically Chinese, uh, some who are naturalized U.S. citizens, some who have, were born U.S. citizens, um, also foreign citizens. An Ming Hu is a Canadian citizen. Eileen Guo at MIT Tech Review has done some good numbers on this. And and I and I want to be clear here that just because there's a disproportional impact of prosecutions on people that share a characteristics, that alone does not show racial profiling. Just that disparate impact. But when you see that you're getting a very high percentage of the cases involving people who share certain characteristics based on nationality, ethnicity, certainly that raises questions about the pipeline of those cases and and whether um, there are decisions being made consciously or unconsciously that might lead there. And I'd also point out that when you look at some of the past cases in the China Initiative with the press releases that are put out there by the Department of Justice, which is one way we learn about, of course, the views of the DOJ, uh, they've highlighted things like the non-Asian or non-Chinese defendants, that they speak Chinese, um, which I don't think is necessarily particularly relevant to put in a press release. And even in the Lieber trial, there was a really um, interesting moment when a Department of Defense investigator was on the stand and was asked by the, asked by the defense whether that the fact that there were many Chinese students working in Lieber's lab was one reason that he was brought to the attention of the government. And the investigator said yes. And so even though Lieber himself is, is white, that doesn't mean that connectivity to China in other ways isn't in play here. And so I think that I got a little frustrated with some reporters who were asking me, you know, does it provide cover to the China initiative that we got a a conviction of someone who's white. And and I don't think of it that way. I, I think that there's bigger questions about, you know, how the whole process of investigation and prosecution uh, is carried out that um, getting a, a conviction of a white professor doesn't, doesn't cure. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, so let's dive into the merits of the whole thing. So, Maggie, you've alluded to this in several different answers, but is it your sense that there's any real type of case-to-case coherence here, either in the the type of charges used or the 
nature of the alleged wrongdoing? Or is it really just the case that the common thread in the China initiative is just, you know, some vague connection with China? No, there's there's certainly coherence in that I think we're seeing increasingly that these dominant questions about research integrity or research security, and both sort of phrases are used and slightly different, but this idea that through the talent plans, or even if not official talent plans, that the PRC party state has very clearly, you know, Xi Jinping has been out there front and center saying, we want the best and brightest minds in tech and science to come here. And we have big plans as a country to make sure that we are not just through Made in China 2025 or whatever slogans, but just generally to enhance that talent pull. So not only slowing the brain drain, which has benefited the U.S. in areas from artificial intelligence to you name it, but also to make it so there's not just a sucking of talent away from China, but a pulling of talent towards China, as Emily has discussed. So that that is a theme. Um, and so here, I think, though, you know, you do have some cases, there might be slightly different charges, but that's been the really the forefront over the now three years, and some of these economic espionage charges, but but relatively few of the defendants actually being charged for the theft or attempted theft of intellectual property. And so you alluded to this a bit here, but I'm curious to hear from both of you your takes on the the threat that the program purports to respond to, right? So is is there really a viable threat here? My sense is from both of you is that the answer would be yes, but it's really in the approach that the Justice Department has taken that we might find some issues. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that statement. Uh, my colleague Ryan Fedashik from CSA, he and I both wrote a piece uh, recently where we kind of tried to lay out the resources at the at the center of U.S.-China tech competition, and we we, we called this framework epic as an equipment, personnel, uh, information, and capital, with personnel obviously being the piece that is tied to talent recruitment and talent programs. And like Maggie was saying, obviously, China has been trying very hard. This is not just a Xi Jinping thing. This is something that has existed for a few decades, even before him, um, has been trying to, again, pull talent to China in various capacities. But personnel and, and kind of talent is only one piece of this broader issue. Um, and I think, you know, we have things for the equipment side, we have things like export controls. Um, but where we're really struggling now, I would say, is in that information piece, in that, you know, patentable inventions, trade secrets, data, and other information that is not necessarily tangible, but is still finding its ways over to China in various legal, illegal, and if you want to call the last category extra legal, which uh, Bill Hannes and Hui, uh, Hui Mei Chang at, at CSET have also kind of coined. It's that extra legal category I think we're really struggling to find responses to. And I think this is why, you know, when we're talking about some of the issues with the China initiative, I think, you know, because that last category, that extra legal category is where we're struggling, we need more tools that are outside of the purview of the Department of Justice. Obviously, they are perfectly equipped to deal with the illegal side of things. They have the frameworks, they have the, you know, statutes, they have they have the system well-established to deal with that. But when, when, when we're talking about extra legal issues, when we're talking about things like coercive measures to absorb IP through, you know, access to markets, or if we're talking about, you know, using, uh, using shell companies or using, you know, th- there are so many strategies that China uses that fit in kind of that extra legal category. But when we're talking about that, we really need to think about 
not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but thinking about other tools in, U- in the U.S. government's toolbox. Yeah, and I would you know add to that that you know this um, on the U.S. side too. Of course, the concerns go back before the Trump administration under Obama. You had increasing concerns about intellectual property theft connected to China. Um, also, of course, hacking. Uh, you had the the case that involved uh, PLA, People's Liberation Army, government um, military connected hackers in China that had great pseudonyms like Ugly Gorilla um, that were indicted. There was no chance they would ever see the inside of a U.S. courtroom, but it was a a clear message being sent by the Obama administration and that they were taking the the concerns more seriously. And so, you know, all that has been there. I I will say that I, I really appreciate the work of Mark Cohen, who's at Berkeley Law now, but for years worked in the U.S. government, including at the USPTO. And he's um, done a really, I think, smart job of pushing back on, for example, the $600 billion number, which has been tossed around a lot about the amount of money the U.S. loses each year in intellectual property to China. And, you know, what is the real basis of that? And and I think that, you know, so it's easy sometimes for there's sort of a, a, a threat narrative that becomes mushy and imprecise, and, and that I don't find helpful. So I think that part of what I, I hope that comes out of all this discussion of the China initiative is really trying to identify, you know, what are the assets that the U.S. considers so important that it's worth using the criminal law to protect, to identify those assets, and to more clearly identify the kinds of activities by China and other foreign governments that constitute national security threats. Yeah, and I would almost argue, too, it it would almost be worth, you know, as we're going through, as Maggie and I have been talking about some of the cases and some of the issues, you know, Maggie mentioned hacking. We've already talked about theft of trade secrets. We've talked about research security. These are all obviously, or at least in my mind, these are all very separate issues that just happen to touch together because of the fact that they're related to China. But to me, it's almost worth, or it would almost be worth splitting these into uh, more thematic issues. Like, obviously, the people that are dealing in the U.S. government with hacking are going to have a very unique set of expertise versus those who are dealing with research security, uh, those who understand the grant-making process. Those are very, again, unique sets of skills. And I think it would behoove us in the U.S. government to find ways to split these up a little bit so we have the right people on the right issues. Yeah, and and one kind of point of um, hope. I'm an optimist by nature. That's come out already, and you know, early earlier this month is the guidance on NSPM 33. So this is always the DC acronym speak, the National Security Presidential Memorandum 33 that came out right at the last you know few minutes of the Trump administration, looking at these issues of research security, and particular now under Eric Lander, who is the advisor on, at the Office of Science and technology policy, you know, he's recognized openly that, for example, the disclosure requirements across different major grant agencies, NSF, NIH, all these three-letter agencies, are are not the same. And that, you know, there needs to be both greater consistency, but also clarity how the what needs to be reported, and then have it so the universities do a better job of training and supporting the 
people dealing with technologies that are considered important um, and that are getting these government grants so that that kind of reporting is done in a way that makes it as transparent as possible. Because ultimately with the criminal law, you know, we, we want to sort out who are the people doing the whoopsies, in which case that's better dealt with probably using some sort of administrative penalty or just a, can you redo this grant application as compared with the going over to China, stuffing a bunch of cash in a duffel bag and bringing it back and hiding it under the mattress? No. And I, I would just add quickly too that, I mean, one of the things that I've been, I've been advocating for, and I, I'm not alone in this, is even just, you know, from the China policy, China study space, putting out as many due diligence materials as we can in the public space for people at universities, you know, university administrators, grant administrators or grant managers at, you know, NSF, NIH, um, and for professors themselves to be able to kind of, you know, do their own due diligence you know, for instance, I, I helped spearhead the China Talent Program Tracker at CSET, um, which is you know pretty much an open source catalog of talent Chinese talent programs and you know the information about various talent programs. And I think in putting out more information like that, we can kind of you know hitting on what Maggie was just saying, sort out the people that you know genuinely didn't know what they were signing up for and just saw it as a good opportunity, you know, to expand their horizons, work with, you know, researchers in China and signed on and are, are thinking kind of, oh, crap, what do I do now? Versus those who who genuinely understood the threat and chose to ignore it. Because I think it, within the cases that we see publicly in the China Initiative, I think there are examples of both of those. But you have to really dig to you know, really see because if you look at just the like the high level messaging from DOJ, obviously it paints everyone in, in a very similar picture. So no one here is you know working at the Justice Department and has an exact window into how this plays out internally. But I, I wonder, Maggie, if you could talk a bit about what the China Initiative as a you know framing device does from a sort of investigative component, right? Does it? Does it mean that there's increased centralization of, of China related cases, right? That the, you know, those who are in charge of the PLA indictments are, you know, more closely collaborating with those who are doing more sort of pedestrian economic espionage cases? Or is it the case that, you know, it's just yielded more resources for DOJ? And just walk us through what the sort of investigative upshot of this might be. It's not a unique thing to have an initiative under the Department of Justice. There's been initiatives from everything to deal with human trafficking to certain kinds of drugs. or And, and, and what I describe this as, as an enhancement and coalescing of resources. That's what really occurred by giving it this label. But I have yet to have anyone show me another time that a country's name was slapped on the label of an initiative. And I, I would recommend... Uh, Carol Lamb, who is, was a federal prosecutor for many years and also the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of California, wrote a commentary for the Committee of 100 as part of a commissioned study they did that Andrew Kim led about economic espionage. And, and in it, as a federal prosecutor, a former prosecutor, she is expressed how she's wary of initiatives because they can disrupt the natural rhythm of criminal investigations. And it, and it puts, in some ways, kind of, this is, she didn't put it this way, the cart before the horse and saying that, well, we're concerned about China. And so, you know, that messaging goes out to all of the various, not just U.S. attorneys, all the 94 
different divisions of the federal Department of Justice's charging, but also to the FBI special agents. And, and so in some ways, I wish there was more centralization because where I get really concerned is when a message goes out that we're concerned, we, the U.S. government, about threats from China, but now we're saying this to a bunch of field agents who might not necessarily have the training both in how federal grants work, but also in what kinds of connections to different entities in China might really be of concern. And, and here I just point to the case again of An Ming Hu, the professor at University of Tennessee, who has now been fully acquitted, but their uh, FBI special agent first looked at him because of uh, concerns about more old school espionage, having seen that Professor Hu had spent time in China at certain conferences. And then over the course of several years, that that switched to wire fraud and, and into these grant fraud allegations and false statements. And there, my sense from what was said in the courtroom and in the judge's opinion, there seemed to be a, a lack of depth and understanding of some information that I think could have stopped that case much sooner. So one thing I am hopeful for is actually greater centralization and oversight by Maine Justice in D.C. So Emily, let's say that we called up Chris Ray, the FBI director right now, and, and asked him, what is the sort of affirmative value of having this program or continuing to have this program? Do you have a sense of what he might say? Like, what's the what's the best case for why having this type of initiative is useful and is, is of affirmative value to, to DOJ? I mean, my guess would be it's important for messaging. I think, you know, as we entered the Trump administration in 2016, you know, I, I kind of sat in a space where, you know, I, I'm in the China policy space. I'm, you know, fully, you know, fully involved in all of these kind of issues. But most people were not necessarily aware of the challenge we were facing with China back in 2016, even even into 2017. You know, we saw things pick up with the Trump administration's trade conflict. But again, there was not really a widespread understanding in the public eye about what was going on. Um, so I think one of the big rationales for starting the China Initiative was to put this out uh, for the public to see. You know, whether or not you want to say it's for the public to, you know, see this or to scare the public, I think people go back and forth on this. And, and I won't pretend to know what the Department of Justice was thinking in this. But I think there is a huge piece of this that is trying to educate, uh, that is trying to get everyone on the same page as far as what we're facing in terms of a challenge or a threat from China. And I would hear, you know, it's been really interesting to see some of the former Trump political appointees now that they're outside of government. And in particular, uh, Andrew Lelling, who was uh, is the former U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. So he was obviously key in bringing charges against Lieber and, and Gang Chen. And when the charges were announced against Professor Gang Chen, who is a naturalized U.S. citizen, Andrew Lelling flat out said, this is not about money, it's about loyalty, which, you know, talk about a moment of sucking in air and saying that's that's not what I personally want to hear out of people who have the you know massive power of a federal prosecutor. But now that he's in private practice, he said um, in a number of articles now that, you know, okay, that deterrent effect, that, that message has gotten out there. And essentially, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, 
uh, the U.S. Department of Justice should kind of take its foot off the gas a little bit. And I'd just say more generally that, you know, again, deterrence is a key reason that societies, we use the criminal law. Don't, to individuals, don't do it again or to other people. If you do X, you will end up like Y and you don't want that. But deterrence is tricky. Ideally, it's used like a scalpel that you can reach in and stop people from doing the bad behavior, the illegal behavior. But the concern here is it's not a scalpel as much as a sledgehammer and that the chilling effect is making it so that there are are real concerns that productive exchanges and and getting people who we want to stay in the U.S. are actually worried about that. And and this is hard to measure. Uh, Jenny Lee and Xiaojie Lee at University of Arizona have done work on this and some others. Uh, But I just say anecdotally, since I've spent a lot of time talking with people who work in the science and technology fields and our professors who are of Chinese descent, that they are they are really scared and and that's authentic and and that and those emotions uh, even if they are not quantifiable are are something that i think we should all be concerned about is there any way of looking at this from either your perspectives where the china initiative comes out looking like a partial at least partial success right is is there any sort of data or anything that would indicate that the the choice to adopt this framing during the Trump administration has accrued affirmative good things? Or, or is it both of your sense that it's, it's mostly just a detractor from what might otherwise be success? I mean, I, I would argue that, you know, again, we needed some sort of messaging campaign. We needed the U.S. public to see that this was a broader issue. I would say, you know, initially when the China Initiative was, was started, I personally was happy to see something like this come out. I think we, it was time, you know, with all of the issues involving theft of trade secrets, I, I, I thought that this was a very positive step forward, particularly coming after, coming out just a few months after the U.S. Trade Representative released its Section 301 investigation report. It felt very timely in that sense. And, you know, I, I stand with needing some type of China initiative or some type of program like this still, I just think it needs to rethink its mission. It needs to kind of like like Maggie was just saying, take a step back and, and rethink its its purpose, because um, I think it does have a purpose here. And there are still issues involving theft of trade secrets, things that are actual industrial espionage that are out there that we need to tackle. But I, I worry that the China Initiative has come to have such a central focus on research security and research, research integrity issues, and that that's not it's just not an appropriate venue to deal with that issue. Um, Because again, most of the stuff happening, most of the like exchange of information that's happening in academia is not theft of trade secrets. It is, it is all open research. And I think, you know, the United States, we, we pride ourselves on the openness of our academic ecosystem. And I think that's something we should continue to advocate for and continue to push for. But, you know, I think just publicly, again, like I said, the China initiative has become too centrally focused on academia. And so, you know, keeping something like this, I I think is only going to do more damage to the relationship between law enforcement and academia. But that being said, there is still a significant threat, a significant challenge that is posed by China. And so I, I wouldn't advocate for doing away with this entirely and rethinking our entire messaging campaign or rethinking our entire approach. But we need to kind of, I would say, pivot, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I am 
keenly aware, I agree with Emily here, of the many reasons to be worried about PRC government actions. I mean, I've spent my career criticizing their human rights record, and then suddenly I'm quoted favorably in People's Daily, which that was that was that was new. Um, and I'm sitting in Taiwan as we're recording this, so I there are so <laughs> many reasons to be concerned, right? And part of my concern, you know, is that I I don't want to give any own goals, and and so it's you know it's I don't want people to leave the United States or not come here um, because not just the China Initiative, but of course you know there's there's been so much of a rise in uh, anti Asian. Um, sentiments, discrimination, hate crimes even. And so there's a lot, unfortunately, I think right now for the PRC party state to work with as far as material. So for me, you know, yeah, woulda, coulda, shoulda, I wish we could go back in time. Uh, We can't, but I, I think there's a real opportunity for the Biden administration to, first of all, get rid of the name, the China initiative. And and part of that has to do with implicit bias that I think as soon as you put that name China on, it's it, it puts people's brains, whether they realize it or not, thinking people with connections to China are somehow they should receive greater scrutiny. And I'm not saying that that's a conscious decision, but it puts, you know, don't think about pink elephants, don't think about China, right? And guess what? Other countries also steal things. So so part of it is getting rid of the title, but it's so much more than that. And I think this, again, this research security aspect is key. Uh, getting more China expertise into the FBI and DOJ, it's there, but I don't think it's sufficient, is really important. And I'm really happy to see that uh, Matt Olson has been confirmed. He's now in as the assistant attorney. Attorney General for National Security, which is a key position. He has a long uh, career in the Department of Justice. He was gone for a few years, but he's also worked with uh, Human Rights First. Um, he was in the Obama administration doing counterterrorism, but was also, I understand, involved with some of the Guantanamo closure discussions. So I'm hoping that he and his team have have, have a, a really healthy mix of both understanding the civil rights issues here and the national security issues. And that is a good place to wrap up. Thanks to you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no, thank you. This is great. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Go Rodeo. The podcast is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patiahau, and your music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.